Biden administration has unveiled its first national security strategy, highlighting China as its main competitor, as well as biggest geopolitical challenge. The report also mentioned North Korea vowing to strengthen the extended deterrence against the regime. Our Shin Ayong leads us off this morning. America's most consequential geopolitical challenge. This is how the Biden administration has described China in an official report outlining its security and foreign policy objectives, which was released on Wednesday. Biden's national security strategy, a Congress-mandated document, was planned to be delivered in January, but that was put on hold due to the war in Ukraine. In the latest security plan, the U.S. defined the strategic threats that the country is facing in two categories competition with major powers like China, and global challenges like climate change, the pandemic, and inflation. In order to win in its competition with China, the U.S. says it will continue to enhance and expand its alliances while bolstering investments in underlying sources and tools of American power and influence. Along with China-related issues, the strategy also mentioned constraining the threat from Russia as another priority, but differentiated between the two. It said Russia poses an immediate threat to international society due to its ongoing war, while saying China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order as well as the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to advance that objective. The U.S. also reaffirmed its commitment to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula through diplomacy, bowing to bolster extended deterrence against North Korea to rain in missile threats. North Korea was mentioned three times in the latest strategy document compared to 17 times in the previous administration's NSS report. Meanwhile, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. has decided to strengthen cooperation with other countries comprehensively to deal with global challenges. Shin Ayong, Arirang News. Folks, we need an effective China deterrence strategy. Welcome back to More War Mondays on the Rob Mana Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. Uh, and just a reminder, we have our X Spaces audience up in simulcast. That's live. Uh, uh, and Kat is hosting that today. So welcome aboard, folks. We appreciate you being here. And we'll try to come to you once in each segment. So what is the U.S. deterrence strategy towards China? The specific effort to deter China from using military force against Taiwan seems to be building, uh, with President Biden even openly stating we would defend Taiwan if they are attacked. But at the same time, his administration insisted the U.S. continues to follow the one China policy that we previously agreed to. China has embarked on an effort to dramatically increase its land-based intercontinental ballistic missile capabilities with what appears to be a clear intent to match or exceed the U.S. numbers. This is in addition to its continued work expanding its Navy, now the largest in the world, including nuclear launch-capable submarines. That would increase the complexity of our own nuclear deterrence strategy, dramatically considering that our efforts in, in Ukraine have driven Russia closer to China, and the Russian nuclear ICBM force is already our peer. My guest today is Dr. Adam Lowther, the Vice President of Research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Nuclear programs of Russia and China. Dr. Lowther, welcome to the Rob Manus Show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. I have to be transparent with my audience and folks. Uh, just so you know, I am part of the Nuclear 
uh, deter <laughs> the, I'm sorry, the Nuclear Institute uh, for Deterrence Studies or the National Institute for Deterrence Studies or NIDS. Uh, I'm a fellow in the organization and Adam is uh, one of the top leaders of that organization. So Adam, uh, let's start it off with what is the is NIDS, National Institute for Deterrence Studies? Uh, and uh, just tell folks a little bit about the organization, please, and uh, how, even how you're funded, because I know that you're a 501c3, and I need folks to know where to go to help you. Yeah, so we're, you know, the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, and we're primarily retired military. I'm, you know, prior military, and most of us are, and we're all guys and, and gals who served in the nuclear enterprise in varying capacities, uh, from the Air Force to Navy to the Army. And really what we did is we banded together and created the National Institute for Deterrence Studies so that we could more effectively advocate and educate Americans about the role of nuclear weapons, what is nuclear deterrence, how does it operate, and so we could counter much of the, the misinformation and disinformation that's so common with the arms control community. And so we are 501c3, so 501c3s rely heavily on uh, donor money, and we're, we're the same. And uh, so that's primarily what we do. And then because we've spent most of our careers working in the nuclear enterprise, we are actively writing, uh, trying, you know, writing articles, publishing. And then, of course, we're out there educating Americans and trying to help them understand what, why do we have nuclear weapons? What role do they play? Why are they important? What direction do we need to go with them? and just try to answer questions that Americans may have. Thank you very much for that. Uh, one of your areas of expertise is China strategy. Uh, so I really wanted to get you to focus on this show uh, about that. That's why I played the opening clip. That's from October, I think, of 2022, when the, when the Biden administration's uh, uh, national security strategy first rolled out. Uh, and one of the terms that, uh, uh, is a uh, is constant in that document is a term called integrated deterrence. Uh, what does that mean for us as we're trying to put together a good strategy and execute it uh, against China, which we've now named as our number one geopolitical threat uh, or potential threat? Uh, well, so integrated deterrence is a concept that we really don't know what it means. It's pretty ill-defined. And so there's no, the administration has yet to clearly define what it is, but the basic premise, and it's a very basic one, is that uh, the administration says, we're gonna use all aspects of government power, economic, diplomatic, we're gonna use sanctions, we're gonna use the treasury, we're gonna use you know, law enforcement, we're gonna use all of these capabilities at the government's discretion to bring those together in order to create a deterrent strategy that does not solely rely on nuclear weapons. Now, for the critics of integrated deterrence, 
there is a view that really what integrated deterrence is, is it's a way to not modernize a nuclear arsenal that, you know, if you take the ICBMs, the Minuteman three, they were fielded in the early 1970s, so they're 50 years old. Right. The, you know, the, the B-52, the last one rolled off the assembly line in 1962. Uh, the, you know, the, the B-2, which is our best weapon, now that's 30 years old. And we, so we have a very aging nuclear enterprise and, and you know, we, we don't really have the capacity within the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration to, to mass produce nuclear weapons if we had to dramatically expand our arsenal. And so for many of the skeptics of integrated deterrence, it's seen as a way to say, we're going to effectively deter and but we don't really want to rely on nuclear weapons as we did during the Cold War. And so when it comes to, de to defining it, there really is no clear definition. It's just a whole of government approach. That's sort of where we stand in terms of trying to understand what it is. Well, that's, that's you picked up right away why I asked the question, Adam, is, is because uh, I couldn't figure out what it meant. And I and I looked at the document uh, and have been following it for the last year or so, trying to figure it out. Uh, and uh, But juxtaposing that uh, over uh, the nuclear deterrence strategy and overall deterrence strategy, really, that we had in the Cold War, because it wasn't just a nuclear deterrence strategy. It was an overall deterrence strategy to try to uh, deter major great power war, uh, if I understood it correctly, when I was involved at the captain major uh, level in that strategy. And uh, uh, this appears to be maybe a half-hearted pathway or approach to try to get to something that looks like the old Cold War strategy against China. Well, it's seal. What I would submit is that the the Biden administration doesn't want anything that even resembles the Cold War strategy, because fundamentally, President Biden has had a long history of advocating the reduction and elimination of nuclear weapons and re reducing our reliance on them is part of our defense and military strategy. And so his constituency that has long supported uh, President Biden and formerly Vice President Biden have been, you know, primarily advocates of nuclear, you know, not only nonproliferation, which all of us agree with nuclear nonproliferation, but arms control and nuclear disarmament. And so it would be a dramatic shift in the president's long-held policy of arms control and reduction if, for example, he were to say, well, the geostrategic environment has changed and I'm going to you know, take a 180-degree change and I now believe that nuclear weapons are increasingly important. That would cause, you know, that would be, you know, like kicking a hornet's nest within his constituency. And so the idea is, well, we we do have a real problem with the Chinese. We even, you know, Jake Sullivan, 
as admitted, we, the Chinese are growing their nuclear arsenal. They're an increasing threat, but the administration is wedded to the idea that you cannot grow nuclear weapons, that, you know, the, the number and the variety of weapons and delivery platforms. And, the, you know, it, the challenge is the Strategic Posture Commission, which just released its report a few days ago, has, and the Strategic Posture Commission was bipartisan. It was, you know, half Democrats and half Republicans. Right. And, and that commission said that the United States, in order to effectively deter Russia, China, North Korea, and potentially Iran, must increase the size of its nuclear arsenal. That's interesting, and uh, it's not an idea that's new to people like me and you, uh, and to increase its capability, you know, precision targeting and, and, and targeting capabilities and those kinds of things, too. Well, let's go over to our live audience, see if anybody's got the mic, uh, Kat, for a question real quick before we go to the first break, Adam. I like to keep the, let the audience engage because, you know, some of your best information comes from American citizens. I know you know that. Uh, uh, but uh, let's see what's going on over there. What do you got, Kat? I've got Elizabeth from Texas. Go ahead. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Thank you, Carl and Kat. Okay, here is where I have a problem in logical thinking. It feels like to me that what is happening is we're not detracts 
from your ability to do that is when you're taking the wrong path. Exactly. Simply put, it's called peace through strength. Uh, you know, we have to be strong in both capability and political will, uh, and that keeps the peace, and it's been successful in the past. Well, Adam, we've got to take commercial breaks because this is a live show, so we're going to go to our first commercial break. But when we come back, uh, I want to let folks hear from you about the definition of something. It's called extended deterrence. We hear it a lot. Uh, right after uh, I do the ad read on the way back in and do a short clip. So we'll be right back, folks, to the Rob Mana Show on the Red Voice Media Network with Dr. Adam Lowther. Attention Americans, breaking news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. Take action now. The Federal Reserve phase deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard. Your hard-earned assets are in jeopardy. But there's a simple legal tax loophole to opt out of the digital dollar. Reach out to American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets. Visit protectfrombiden.com. This invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Be smart. Don't let Biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar. Visit protectfrombiden.com to get your free guide and get started. Again, that's protectfrombiden.com. working. I know that. Naomi, do you want a mic? Well, listen up, folks. As you just heard there, Bidenomics isn't working. The U.S. dollar is losing value, and your hard-earned assets and savings are at risk. You can act now before it's too late with one straightforward, entirely legal tax loophole. Contact our friends over at American Alternative Assets for a free health wealth protection guide. Learn how to safeguard your wealth from a failing dollar and volatile markets with gold and silver IRAs. Dial 833, the number 2, USA Gold. That's 833-287-2465. Or you can visit protectfrombiden.com. Well, welcome back to the Rob Mana Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. We're talking about uh, an effective China strategy for the United States with Dr. Adam Lowther, uh, Vice President of Research uh, at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Uh, and I'm going to show clip two here real quick uh, as we come into this segment to give a little bit more clarity on what the United States is up to with this new strategy. China has an almost unbreakable wall of missiles to destroy any large U.S. force entering its waters. But the U.S. has a new strategy to completely dismantle it. Welcome to China Uncensored. I'm Chris Chappell. And the U.S. has a problem. For decades, the U.S. assumed that it would always have battlefield supremacy. After all, the U.S. military's budget is higher than most countries' GDP. But China is gearing up for war against Taiwan and the Pacific at large. And it has some aces up its sleeve. 
One of the biggest advantages China has is its huge arsenal of missiles. Because nothing says, we just want to unite peacefully with Taiwan more than these babies. These help serve China's anti-axis area denial, or A2AD, capabilities to keep the U.S. out and deny the U.S. the ability to freely maneuver. Essentially, it's the most high-stakes, high-budget version of stay off my lawn in history. Against someone claiming everything in the area is their lawn. The idea is that the U.S. will think twice before putting its large, expensive aircraft carriers and other high-tech arsenal within China's missile range. But the U.S. has the perfect response. I'm going to do it anyway. Area denial only works if you let it. So the U.S. has a new strategy to operate within range of China's missiles. It's called Force Design 2030, and it's led by the U.S. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Adam Lowther uh, from the National Institute of Deterrent Studies about China's strategy and America's China strategy. Uh, uh, Adam, uh, that little clip there opened up a little bit more view of the window uh, to uh, what China is doing. Uh, but uh, one of the terms that we keep hearing is extended deterrence. What does that mean exactly? So when, if you go back to the beginning of the Cold War, the United States was initially the only power that had nuclear weapons. And then the Soviet Union developed its own weapons. And then it wasn't until uh, the, the early 60s that China developed nuclear weapons. And so what the United States said was, we don't want all of our allies to develop their own nuclear weapons. And so while, you know, Great Britain also developed weapons and then France ultimately developed weapons, you saw this very slow expansion of nuclear nations. And what the United States thought was, if we offer an umbrella, if you literally think of an umbrella, and that nuclear umbrella gives protection to our allies, then our allies won't feel it necessary to develop their own arsenals. And so, for example, with, with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, the United States guarantees a nuclear umbrella over the NATO membership. And then we also have a treaty with Japan and with South Korea. And what we say is that we will come to your defense. And that nuclear umbrella has for and on more than 50 years, ensured that our, our allies have not developed their own nuclear weapons. But it, what it does mean is it means that we have to be willing, if it's required, to trade New York or Berlin or San Francisco for Seoul, because that's part of what extended deterrence requires, is that you have to have the capability and the will to actually engage in a nuclear conflict to defend your ally. That's the promise you've made. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I know we're part of the non-proliferation treaty, uh, but uh, NATO has nuclear weapons. Don't, don't some of the NATO countries have nuclear weapons already or? So, is there an effort to get, get the, them to Japan and South Korea, I guess, is where I'm going with it? Yeah, so NATO has a, 
about 200 nuclear weapons in, in NATO. And those are NATO nuclear weapons that are under the control of the nuclear planning group, which is the NATO nuclear, the NATO membership. Now, those are all U.S. nuclear weapons, but they could be delivered by some of our NATO partners, but they're U.S. weapons. Now, also, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, United Kingdom, they have a small nuclear arsenal where they have one submarine. They have four nuclear submarines, and one of those nuclear submarines is always at sea. And so they've got a small number of nuclear weapons that are on alert. And then you have France, which France does not participate. It's a NATO member, but it does not participate in NATO's nuclear planning group. They kind of say, hey, we're going to do our own thing. We've got our own interests. We're not, you know, we're going to take our ball and go home. And so we don't really have a plan with with France. Now, when it comes to Japan, ensconced in Japan's constitution that was, you know, written by Douglas MacArthur after World War II, they are, of course, a non-nuclear country that only has military forces for self-defense. And they've restricted themselves to that because of the aggression that took place before and during World War II. And then South Korea, as, a, as an ally of the United States, during the Cold War, we actually had a very large number of nuclear weapons in South Korea. And then it, when the Cold War ended, we removed all of those nuclear weapons in late 1991, and they've never been put back in South Korea. So for the South Koreans now, as North Korea has gone nuclear and it has gone increasingly belligerent and it's growing its missile capability and its nuclear weapons, the South Koreans have said, well, uh, will the United States actually trade Los Angeles or South Korea for Seoul? Will they do that? And so they publicly talked about, is there a need for South Korea to build its own nuclear arsenal? We don't want them to, and we've been trying to convince them not to. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, the Washington Declaration, which President Biden and President Yun of South Korea signed a few months back, and you saw we sent a ballistic missile submarine to South Korea, made a port call. Uh, we've had the, the head of U.S. Strategic Command, General Cotton, has been in South Korea. We've said, hey, we're here for you, and we're trying to use these port calls and visits of senior leaders as very significant signs that we are committed to the, to the treaty, to the defense treaty with South Korea. Okay. Any move a foot out there to do a NATO-style extended deterrence where uh, those countries get control of uh, of their own weapons, but their weapons like the U.S. still owns and those kinds of things? Or is it a totally different uh, approach that we're going to go on out there? Yeah, so the the Japanese do not want nuclear weapons on their soil. So there's there's really no desire to have a NATO style you know nuclear presence so just to to clarify within NATO there are air force bases 
And on those Air Force bases, there are fighter aircraft that can carry a nuclear weapon. And they can deliver that. It's a gravity bomb, the B-61. And they can deliver that gravity bomb. So when it comes to the U.S.-Korea relationship, which is these are bilateral relationships, so it's not an alliance of 31 countries like in NATO. These are bilateral. And for the United States and South Korea, the United States does not want to return nuclear weapons to South Korea. Now, the South Koreans would like it. They would very much like those nuclear weapons back. That would help them feel more secure, and they believe that that would improve deterrence vis-a-vis -vis North Korea and potentially China. The Japanese, they would like, for example, we, we have ballistic missile submarines, boomers, that carry submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and that's what we say, we're going to use those if we have to. That's our protection for you. But for the Japanese, the Japanese would very much like what are called what's called slickum in submarine launch cruise missile nuclear. And those would be nuclear cruise missiles that are launched from fast attack submarines. And so we're relying on a sea leg, and then we could potentially fly bombers across the Pacific to deliver nuclear weapons if we had to. But by and large, we're relying on the ballistic missile, the submarine launch ballistic missile leg of the triad to protect Japan and South Korea. Wow, and all of that, but you know, considering our last segment's conversation of an aging stockpile and weapon systems to deliver uh, these weapons, uh, it seems like we're relying more and more and more uh, layers uh, onto that set of systems, uh, and uh, we may not be putting the right resources into that to refurbish them, upgrade them, uh, and maybe even build more additional uh, capability to go along with them. That's kind of uh, risky, it seems. Well, so if you think about the what we call nuclear deterrence and what it costs, right now we spend about 5% of the defense budget, 5% on the entire nuclear modernization and then current operations. So that's what we do every day anyway, plus right. building new stuff. That We do that for 5% of the defense budget. Now, let me put that in comparison. So if you think about Medicaid and Medicare, two programs, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, which runs those programs, estimates that they lose about $70 billion a year in waste, fraud, and abuse. $70 billion a year. Now, at the height of modernization, we're only going to spend about $50 billion a year on current operations and modernization. That's not even the cost of what Medicare and Medicaid lose in waste, fraud, and abuse every year. And yet we're told that nuclear modernization is too expensive and we can't afford it. But yet I've never heard of anybody ever saying we can't afford the losses to waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicare and Medicaid. Nobody complains right. about it. 
I bet your your viewers didn't even know we lost that much. So yeah. nuclear enterprise is really cost effective and you get, you know, pardon the pun, but you get a great bang for your buck. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's go over to that live audience on Spaces. Uh, and Kat, uh, uh, were people aware of that? Do you have anybody that's got the mic or do you have a question you want to ask Adam real quick? Uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, comparison there on how much we lose for Medicaid and Medicare by fraud uh, as opposed to what we spend to uh, uh, operate our nuclear forces, which save millions of lives. Yeah, I don't have anybody with a question. I only have one person with a mic. They're being a bunch of chickens today. So <laughs> how about this? I'll ask this. I'll ask a really Pollyanna question. How about this? Any day in the future in our lives, are we ever going to see where everybody just de-escalates? Is that ever a possibility? Is it always going to be a matter of you first? No, you first. Because that's what it always seems like to me. Like, hey, we'll reduce arms if you do this or this. And I'm just, I mean, I know it's kind of Pollyanna because I don't think we will ever see that, but I'm just asking just in general. I'll throw that one over to Adam. Uh, he, he's a verified expert in that area of uh, expertise there. So what do you think, Adam? So I'm not one who believes that we will ever see this utopian view in which, you know, there's two really schools of thought. There's the idealist, and that's the arms control community. And the arms control community believes that, that you know, they don't believe that human nature is fundamentally flawed or wicked. You know, this sort of the Judeo-Christian view of human nature. They reject that. And what they say is that people are neither good nor bad, they're the product of their environment. And so if we just create the right government institutions and we provide the right education, the right moral values, and then we create the right international institutions, then we won't need nuclear weapons, we can eliminate them. And then the realists say, you know, humans are fundamentally flawed and wicked. And they are self-interested. And that self-interest, you know, it works at the individual level. And then when you create governments, you just have organizations full of individuals who are all wicked and evil. And therefore, they're all pursuing interests. And historically, if we look at nations, nations always pursue advantage over other nations. And because they fear losing and they fear that they'll go away. And so therefore this idea that you know we're going to see disarmament, I actually think that the only time nuclear weapons may become irrelevant is when some new weapon that is far better and far scarier you know is invented and then nations will say, well geez, I don't need nuclear weapons. That's that's old at. I've got this new thing called rods from God or lasers or whatever it may be. And then they'll replace nukes with, you know, advanced lasers or whatever may be the next great technological advantage. But for now, nothing is more destructive than nuclear weapons and nothing generates as much fear as nuclear weapons. And that fear is what causes nations to pause. And that's what causes them to say, I don't want to go to war with a nuclear armed adversary. And that meets that 
fundamental yeah. interest of the nation. Absolutely. I think we're in the same uh, viewpoint on uh, realism versus the other side, <laughs> Adam. Uh, nations act in their own interest. You'll hear that. You'll see that all over my X timeline and, and all over my shows when I'm talking about warfare. We've got to take our next break, Adam. Uh, when we come back, though, uh, I want to talk about, uh, from the perspective of your, your area of expertise, China's uh, strategy of the regional war trap. We'll be right back on The Rob Manus Show. How in the world could such a small group of people with limited resources change world history? But in fact, that's happening, and it's the power of the truth. The truth is like kryptonite. Healthcare isn't, in some sense, working very well. Foster Colson is thinking about this. He's got a new company, an online healthcare platform called The Wellness Company. Telehealth company called The Wellness Company. The Wellness Company. TWC.health is The Wellness Company. The most popular product is the detoxification supplement. That features natokinase. Natokinase is the only enzyme that we're aware of right now that dissolves the spike protein. Spike protein is loaded in the body with the COVID-19 infection and definitely with the vaccines. We've been completely accurate on the spread of the virus, early treatment, on the deficiencies in hospital care, and now the deaths that are occurring after vaccination. This is a human outrage and is occurring at the end of a hypodermic needle. Isn't it interesting? Natural substance is combating this man-made disaster. So we've observed now that regional wars have become a trap in the struggles of major powers. I call this the regional war trap. This means that it's not a direct confrontation or combat between major powers, but rather they use regional wars to drag you in, entrap you, wear you down, consume your resources, and eventually bring you to your knees. That's the tactic at play. Welcome back to the Rob Maida Show here on the Red Voice Media Network, and we're simulcast on X Spaces uh, again today, and uh, we appreciate the audience over there. Kat is our host that's uh, helping folks get lined up to get mics and take a question, and our guest today is Dr. Adam Lowther, the Vice President for Research of the uh, National Institute of Deterrence Studies, of which I'm a member, uh, and uh, gratefully so, because it's a very important for citizens to band together and study hard problems. Uh, and uh, that's what that institute does. Most of us are retired military, and we're talking about the U.S.'s China strategy from the perspective of national defense and, uh, and the nuclear force, Adam. And I wanted to show that little clip there, because that's a Chinese official. Uh, talking about their strategy, uh, and some people don't actually believe they have this strategy, but I believe that it's part of their global strategy to draw great other great powers into regional conflicts, more than one, uh, quite frankly, and even the vaunted United States uh, could get caught up into this if, they, if they're large enough. Uh, and uh, I was just wondering, uh, I wanted to ask you, since it's a very current topic, you know, what is the perspective of someone that studies nuclear deterrence uh, and the current readiness of that force uh, and how that can help us or hinder us 
if we get caught in that regional war trap, which it looks like we may be taking a step toward that direction with the Israel thing combined with Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, the, one of the big challenges is that, you know, and this is something that's always been a problem, and that is, and it was a problem for great powers like, you know, the British Empire and, and you know, if you go way back, the Roman Empire, is that you overextend yourself, you spend your resources, and then when the actual vital interest is at stake, you've already spent more than you have, than you need to fight that true threat. And so for, for China, the more the United States is involved supporting Ukraine, you know, supporting Israel, uh, stuck in Syria, and all over, first of all, the United States is distracted from what China is doing. That's one of the big things, you know, while we were fighting the war on terror, China was modernizing. And China has build, been building the capacity to actually engage in a war against the United States. So after the first Gulf War in 1991, China conducted a series of studies in which they looked at that war and they ultimately came to the conclusion that the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union had been China's adversary since 1969. They were regionally located next door to China. So that's who they feared. But then after 1991, they said the United States can deliver power anywhere in the world. And the, you know, the great communist power, the Soviet Union, is gone. The, the so or the communist power that's left is us. And so, therefore, they're going to come after us, and we've got to be able to stop that. And so the Chinese strategy began to develop and evolve after those studies were completed by 1993. And that's when they created active defense, which is this idea that they're going to defend the further out, and then they're going to defend in. So when you talk about A2AD, anti-access area denial. They don't want right. you to get close. But in the meantime, they want you fighting all of these other wars that will bleed you dry of blood and treasure. And that's something that they're, yeah. they want. Go ahead. Yeah, they, they want that to happen. Exactly right. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been seeing a lot of reporting about them building out, and I mentioned it in my opening, their intercontinental continental ballistic missile force uh, which was rel relative to ours and Russia's was really small uh, not that long ago. Uh, so, so what's the truth around that and the facts around that? Are they really uh, getting close to parity with us in that category of the triad? And the triad, folks, is the triangle of, of defenses for the United States, the air, aircraft like bombers, uh, land-based missiles, and sea-launched ballistic missiles. Uh, and other types of weapons with nuclear capability. Uh, so, so are they really getting close to parity with us? So we think, you know, that the intelligence community has consistently said that they only had about 300 weapons. Now, myself and others have said, no, we think they have, they probably have more, and we think they have enough plutonium which is, you know, you build 
pits, uh, the pits for the warheads out of plutonium. We think they have more plutonium than has been reported, which would mean they could build more warheads than we've anticipated. And so the, the problem has often been that, like Russia, China has been largely dependent on intercontinental ballistic missiles because that was a technology that they were able to master relatively quickly. They have not been able to master the development of stealth technology. Much of their stealth technology is its largely what the technology they've stolen from the United States from us. Right. And they have not been able to master the development and fielding of intercontinental bombers that can fly across continents and then back. And then when it comes to submarines, their submarines are not particularly quiet. So they're actually easy to find in the ocean. And then they have not mastered the ability to sail, you know, a submarine to put it on what we call a deterrent patrol, where it spends 90 days under the ocean surface. So they've had some technical challenges, but what they've done, like the Russians, they relied most heavily on their intercontinental ballistic missiles, and a lot are in the ground, but then they also have mobile missiles that are on the backs of, of what are called tells, which a tell basically moves around and, you right. know, a mobile missile's hard to track and then harder to hit. Right. And so when they built these 300 additional silos, we believe that they can put missiles in those silos and that that's what they're doing over time. And we have satellites overhead that are, are looking and watching to see what they're putting in there and to see if they're actually filling those with ICBMs. But they have the capability, they have the technical know-how, they have the nuclear, but special nuclear material it takes to build those weapons and warheads. And so what we think is probably happening is that before they attack Taiwan, Xi Jinping has said that they're going to forcibly reintegrate Taiwan. And it's not really reintegrate, it's integrate, because Taiwan has never really been part of China. And this is one thing I think most of your audience needs to understand, is that it, what is Han China, which is really what China is. Han is essentially, it's, you know, China and the Han are one and the same. So for example, in the United States, our citizens can be, you know, black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. But for China, the Han ethnic identity is one, is one with Chinese national identity. And so this heartland of the Han, which is central China, that developed around the Yangtze and the Yellow Rivers, which is, right. you know, maybe up to 4,000 years old, mm -hmm. they've gone out and they've added, they've been an expansionist country, which has added Manchuria, which is another ethnic group. They've added Inner Mongolia. That's a different people that is not historically part of China. They've added... You know, what is East Turkestan, which is, you know, we call it Xinjiang, but that's right. a totally different ethnic group. They've added Tibet, they've added Yunnan, they've, so they've been an expansionist power since 1949, and mm -hmm. the last 
place they want to expand is Taiwan. Because Taiwan is, first of all, it's, it's strategically critical. It can cut off Chinese shipping. But then it's also, it's a thriving democracy. Right. And so for, for the Han Chinese in Beijing and Shanghai, they look to Taiwan and they can say, well, why don't we have a country like that? <laughs> and that's not something Xi Jinping can allow because his fundamental concern is to protect and preserve the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, exactly right. Well, we've got to take our last break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll dive a little bit further into the Middle East, but we'll go right to the mics. I think I've got a, uh, a person with a mic over in the live audience, and we'll be right back on The Rob Mana Show here on the Red Voice. We interrupt today's programming to bring unfortunate news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. So take action now. The Federal Reserve's phased deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard and put your hard-earned assets in jeopardy. But here's the good news. There's a simple legal tax loophole to opt out of the digital dollar. Speak to someone at American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets dial 833 the number two usa gold yes call now 833-287-2465 this invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your ira or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences don't let biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar call 833 the number two usa gold yes call now 833 833- 287-2465. Act swiftly. 833-287-2465. A few months ago in April, a Chinese military expert, Long Kaifeng, summarized China's Middle Eastern strategy and predicted two developments. China will broker a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran and an Arab-Israeli war. In the Middle East, China has made three big moves. First, the reconciliation of Saudi Arabia and Iran. Second, Syria has rejoined the Arab League. The third is the realization of statehood for Palestine. The next step is the handling of relations between Israel and the Arabs, which I'm afraid will have to be resolved by war. Welcome back to the Rob Manus Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. We're talking the U.S. strategy to deter China. And that was just a little view of one of the, some of the activ- actual activities China's been involved in in the Middle East uh, and, and talking about the potential for uh, war with Israel uh, at the center of that. And our guest today is Dr. Adam Lowther. Uh, Vice President of Research at the uh, National Institute of Deterrence Studies. And uh, we'll go over to the X-Spaces audience. I think we've got a hand up, somebody with the mic with a question uh, before we move out to finish the show and the segment. Go ahead, Kat. Yeah, Elizabeth from Texas. Okay. With everything that's going on in this world 
and everybody's going chaotically, in my opinion, stupid. Um, is there a chance? Because we knew when we went into Vietnam, we weren't going to win that war. Is there a chance of us winning this to protect Taiwan? That's a great question. What do you think, Dr. Lowther? So the, the big challenge for Taiwan right now is that Taiwan lacks nuclear weapons because the reality of it is is that no nuclear-armed adversary has attacked another nuclear-armed state. And so for, for Taiwan, their best defense would be developing their own nuclear arsenal. Now, let's suppose that doesn't happen, and you have to have a conventional conflict. Absent, very direct U.S., Australian, Japanese, South Korean support, Taiwan would would probably be devastated. So it, it's it would be hard to see the U.S. not intervening. And then as and of course for Japan, you know that island chain that you know that goes up to Okinawa, and so the Japanese understand that they too are a target of of the Chinese of the the PRC, and so they are more willing to help because they understand that, you know, this is sort of one of those instances where, you know, the former British prime minister prior to the invasion of Czechoslovakia and Poland, you know, Clement Attlee stepped off the plane and said, I have peace for our time, which really just gave Adolf Hitler time to build his forces further. So the Japanese understand the growing threat from China. And I think we do too. And so I, I think that we will help Taiwan. I think the Japanese will help. And with that kind of help, Taiwan has a chance of remaining, although it may be devastated, remaining a free and independent democracy. So Adam, what do we have to do? Thank you so much. What do we have to do uh, uh, if we're not doing it already, to ensure that we are capable of helping them if necessary, uh, considering everything that's going on in the world. That's why I wanted to play that Middle East clip. Uh, you know, I mean, I, mean, I mean, nuclear forces don't stand in isolation from what's happening in the rest of the world, and countries don't stand in isolation, especially great powers. Uh, and uh, China's been uh, conducting what's called the Belt and Road Initiative uh, around the globe for for a long time now. They even operate harbors, I think, in, in uh, Israel, uh, for instance, uh, under part of that initiative. So uh, that is seen by a lot of us as, as their, their reach into the infrastructure that they would need to be a power at peer level with the United States to be able to range the globe, as they said, when, when the Soviet Union fell uh, and prevent the United States from doing that to them and their reach. So what does the U.S. need to do in order to be capable of helping Taiwan if that were to happen, say, today, considering every that we see, that we know about, that we see in open reporting? 
Well, the first thing the United States has to do is it has to arm Taiwan with the kinds of capabilities that it requires to ensure that it can resist until the United States shows up. And then the United States, you know, we're going to rely heavily on submarines and our surface ships. You know, this will, by and large, it'll be an air war and a sea war. So the United States has to be ready to begin operations. You know, we'll operate from Okinawa, we'll, we'll operate from Australia, you know, for air, our air forces. And then our maritime forces are going to be steaming, you know, it'll take them time to steam right. across the Pacific, but we need to have those submarines there. You know, we've got the U.S. Army has started you know, it's going back to Taiwan, which, you know, we used to have a large number of troops in Taiwan but during right. the Cold War. And so we've got to, we got to have the capability, the kinds of, you know, JASM and JASM ER, the kinds of, yep. you know, the kinds of missiles, the, the other kinds of capability to push the Chinese back after their initial attack. And then we have to be able to rally allies and partners and the, the international community such that the international community is more responsive than they were in the invasion of Ukraine. Because by and large, it was a relatively small group of states that are actively supporting the yep. Ukraine. And then, of course, support's wavering because it people is. are saying, hey, are, are, is this <laughs> worth, you know, is this juice worth the squeeze? It's got to be the right it's got to be the right uh uh it, it's got to be the right national interest uh, and it's not for a lot of folks Adam. well thank you for joining us today folks you can, we've had think deterrence uh from their ex uh, the nids ex account up the entire show uh we appreciate uh, dr lowther's uh supporting us and coming on the show i hope you got a lot out of it thanks to the spaces audience and we got to run over to uh, Sean Parnell and uh, Battleground is the brand new show, and Tucker is still laughing. I'm Rob Manus. I'll see you tomorrow on Training Tuesday. Biden and his cronies have lost over $3 trillion of America's retirement savings in 2022 alone. With inflation running rampant and the stock market crashing, do you have a plan to protect your wealth? Our friends at American Alternative Assets help you protect your retirement savings by rolling over your IRA or 401k into a gold IRA. Fact is, you can hold physical gold and silver in your retirement account while maintaining its tax-deferred status. Visit protectfrombiden.com today to get your free wealth protection guide this guide will give you all the answers you need american alternative assets is an a-plus and accredited member of the better business bureau protect your savings now before it's too late visit protectfrombiden.com individual results may vary there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results
If you're like me and you want to be prepared for the unexpected. That's where the wellness company's emergency medical kit comes Over in. 40% of Americans say that they would avoid a doctor or a hospital unless it was a catastrophic situation. Medical emergency kits with ivermectin. The kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications for you to keep on hand in the event of natural disasters, supply chain shortages, medical emergencies, or like an apocalyptic situation. These are the actual medications that you would need in the event of certain situations. So they've got emergency antibiotics, antivirals, antiparasitics, 